Who am I? Why am I here? Ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. I shall not seek and I will not accept the nomination of my party for another term as your president. Tear down this wall. And the wall just got 10 feet taller. We're going to California and Texas and New York. We're going to South Dakota and Oregon and Washington and Michigan. And then we're going to Washington, D.C. to take back the White House. Polishing all the schmutz off of our best car armor. It's election shock therapy. Guys, <laughs> this is the way. <laughs> This is the way, my friends. <laughs> Matt, you watching uh, The Mandalorian? Yeah, Courtney and I, this is our, our new sort of Friday night thing that we're watching uh, for, for the season. So it's episode two was a little weird. Episode three was awesome. You know, bringing back some good old-fashioned firefights with stormtroopers. Sorry, spoiler alert, everyone. Yeah, no, they can't. It's got the biggest lingering political question that uh, these first three seasons of the second, uh, first three episodes of the second season of Mandalorian have left me with. How do you feel about Baby Yoda perpetrating a partial genocide? (laughs) Oh, come, you know that's just that's just dumb. I'm sorry, I I do not subscribe to the creatures of an entire alien race left on the planet. They've managed to spawn. They're frog-like. They've managed to spawn like the last brood of their kind, and Baby Yoda finds them to be a delectable snack. (laughs) Wow. Um, I'm sorry, but all the nonsense that's been circulating from like Vanity Fair and other other places getting worked up about. I was making a joke. This is a thing. Oh, it is. It is. Um, Oh, no. Yeah, there was huge. Yeah, there was like. Yeah, people talking about genocide and like, and Vanity Fair posted this critique, and then the cr- the criticizers got roundly criticized. Oh, it's just, it's now I feel bad for bringing it up because I was just making a joke, and I didn't think that. Of course, th- this is twenty twenty. It doesn't matter what you what you want to make a joke about. Someone will find a way to take it seriously. Oh yeah. yeah. Uh, well, yes, okay. and, and people are just hypersensitive to something. Okay. Right. Well, so my, apology, my apologies to the. Uh, the Yoda community um, and my implications <laughs> that she participated in a mass war, war crime and atrocity. Wow. wow. Okay. Hey, like, so I haven't watched this at all. So I have no comment on the baby Yoda issues, but, um, but I think it is interesting. Like it, this illustrates the kind of lack of humor we have in our, our society and our mm-hmm. politics. Um, and it matters like even something where, you know, like you, you can try to make a joke and you step on somebody's toes. Right. And yeah. it's, I think that, that actually is an issue in our real political realm right now. Well, I'm very sensitive to this though, because on the one hand, I recognize that there has been most of America's history has been defined by humor, which, um, which gives benefit to the powerful and which is um, a way of, of reinforcing uh, power in society. So I'm sensitive to that, especially somebody who is powerful in society. So, um, but you're right. We, we are, we're rapidly losing any sense of, right. of good humor as well. Yeah, right. well, let, let, let's be fair here. It's not like America as a whole has lost a sense of humor, and this is an explanation of it. There's a certain subclass of yep. people yep. who are very um, attuned to being offended by, you know, even, you know, slight things like this, um, right. who, who need yeah. to lighten up. So right. and, it, and, it's notable that the bulk of America didn't cry genocide. It was a certain set right. of right. hyper progressive elites that cried genocide. And the rest of America said, Hey, like, yep. it's yep. a joke, yep. right? It's a yep. gag. Right. And, and it's yep. not really genocide, but anyway. yep. well, yep. but I, I would also argue that, that, that this cut <laughs> does cut both ways in a certain way. There's, um, there's a, there's a, marriage of convenience between partisan uh, punditry, partisan news outlets, and their respective bases to be offended about the kinds of things they can be easily offended by. Yep. Right? Um, So whether it's the president wearing a tan suit, looking at you, Barack Obama, or whether it's uh, (laughs) Baby Yoda scarfing down some some delicious, delicious frog eggs um, of sentient (laughs) beans. um, Unfertilized frog eggs, but anyway. True. Um, if we want to, which might make not a important. Um, <laughs> Small factor. But if uh, <laughs> wow, but there, but there is we, we we can we can manufacture offense, and oh, yeah. there's um, and do. I, yeah we and do and what's what's been interesting to me is that whether it's on the left or the right, we're yeah. the the progression that seems to have happened is it's no longer we're offended at things that we're offended by. We're offended at the possibility that somebody might be offended. 
um, yeah. whether or not anyone is. And that's, yes. um, that, that's a, that, that's an evolution of our, of our sense of, of yeah. how we, of how we cast communication. So. Yeah. yeah, I felt like we uh, skipped straight to the fourth episode of our mini series talking about <laughs> our political culture. <laughs> it's it's a Mandalorian I know. Uh, here's what we're actually going to do today, guys. Uh, we have um, a, a whole series of sort of post-election wrap-up um, topics we'd like to cover, and today is all about uh, yes, the polls, the polls and demographics. We're going to address <laughs> some of these issues. A little bit with a little bit more information than we've had a chance to talk about previously, and we'll weave into that um, some information about what we can say at this point about why polls may have been more wrong than perhaps people were anticipating. So, before we get to that, quick, we've got some transition news. Uh, who's Chris Krebs, and why is he now looking for a job, guys? Well, he's a high-ranking official in the Homeland Security um, Department who's brought in. He's somebody who had a lot of expertise um, in kind of cyber technology from the, the private sector, Microsoft, I think. And he, um, he was brought in in part to respond to the concerns about um, the Russian, um, you know, election tampering allegations right back in, in 16. Um, so he's a Trump appointee. Um, he's brought in to basically handle election security kind of issues. Um, and so he's done that. He's been in, on the job since 17. He's received um, a third degree of praise from both sides of the aisle for being a competent member of the Trump administration. Um, and he was fired by the president yesterday for basically um, saying something we've said on this podcast, which is there is no evidence to suggest that there's election fraud or irregularities, that in fact, this election was free, fair and conducted um, in a secure way, as we would hope. Um, and that was not acceptable to the president. It doesn't fit his narrative. And so he fired Krebs. And I just have to add to this for um, an attempt to make up for my distraction with uh, with Disney Plus shows. I want to uh, <laughs> read, read to you the, the tweet from Donald Trump um, okay. justifying the firing of Chris Krebs, who Chris Krebs' official title was Director of the Department of Homeland Security, Cybersecurity, Security, Infrastructure Security Agency. Um, but Andy's absolutely that. right. This was dealing with uh, election security issues. Uh, Donald Trump tweets. The recent statement by Chris Krebs on the security of the 2020 election was highly inaccurate in that there were massive improprieties and fraud, including dead people voting, poll watchers not allowed into polling locations, glitching in voting machines, which changed. Uh, and he goes on to this next tweet, uh, um, the, the vote. Um, immediately, uh, Twitter has flagged this tweet saying, this claim about election fraud is disputed. Um, so uh, Donald Trump's claim of why Chris Krebs claimed that the election was fair is being, is being claimed as unfair by the platform he's tweeting it upon. If you followed yeah. that, email us at electionshocktherapy.com. <laughs> uh, we have a question yes, for you. Um, yeah. so, <laughs> we really don't. <laughs> But this is um, – is this, this is, is this just payback? Uh, there's an official in the DHS that says something contrary to the president's claims about election integrity, and so Trump's just showing him to the door as payback? Is that what's happening here? Yeah, and it and it allows him to sort of continue the narrative that the whole system was rigged against him, right? Yeah. I mean, Krebs was – um, basically saying a week ago that he fully expected to be fired because yep. of the positions that he's taken all along. Right. Yeah. And lo and behold, that's exactly what happens. So yeah. it's, it's unsurprising, you know, it's, it's kind of silly and obnoxious, but you know, that's, that's the way Trump's rolling. Um, yeah. again, you know, firing people who disagree. I mean, it's all, it's all about loyalty tests for Trump. Right. Yep. Um, you know, yep. and you know, if you're not loyal to him either as, you know, another elected official, you know, in Congress, or as, you know, a member of, you know, the president's, you know, team um, right. or, you know, a high level executive, you know, you know, bureaucrat, like, you know, if you're not loyal, you're, you're out. And, and we've seen yeah. sort of repeat, you know, over the past two or three years, Trump sort of slowly replacing sort of career sort of civil servants who have, you know, a lot of expertise in the system with his own people, um, yeah. you know, you know, some of which don't have much expertise um, in yeah. these respective policy areas. So yeah. uh, this is very much in keeping with with Trump's sort of loyalty test. Right. What's striking about this firing, right? Is, I mean, this is a Trump appointee, right? This is one of his people. This is not, uh, a, you know, a member of the kind of the left, right? That's opposing right. him or something like that. 
Um, and it's like, I mean, you pile on, like you go around the country, right? And there's like, there's election officials, Republicans and Democrats saying the same thing as Krebs, right? That this is not, you know, this is not unfair. There are not irregularities. You have the Republican Secretary of State of Georgia, right? Again, who Trump does not have the power to fire, or I'm sure he would love to be doing that, right? Um, <laughs> and, you know, he's saying the same thing, right? Like this was not unfair. We're looking at this, we're checking the election is being conducted properly, right? Where vote counting is happening properly. Votes are being submitted properly, right? I mean, like, these are not people who have an incentive to kind of support a radical left narrative, right? Which is what Trump wants us to believe. Um, quite to the contrary. They're people who are on his side, but they're saying facts are facts, right? This election was done fair and square, and you lost, Mr. President. There's another angle to this too, which is the legal angle. So over the course of the last couple of weeks, um, the Trump campaign has lobby launched a number of lawsuits, somewhere in the range of uh, two dozen lawsuits uh, of various kinds, alleging various kinds of election improprieties. Uh, notable among these were allegations in places like Michigan and Pennsylvania that election observers were not allowed into the room where votes were counted. Mm -hmm. Now, the the, the, there's two notable things to, to point out here. One, the tr the Trump campaign success rate in these uh, uh, these cases has been very low so far. Uh, of the cases that have been resolved, uh, most of them have been dismissed by judges. Only one has been upheld in favor of the Trump campaign. Something in the range of a couple, about 20 of them have been dismissed. And so not a lot is sticking here. But the other thing that I find very interesting is Lawyers on behalf of the Trump campaign are presenting a much more modest uh, series yeah. of complaints in yeah. the court than are than we're hearing uh, in the public arena. Mostly because lawyers are liable for being held in contempt if they lie in court and they face disbarment if they do yeah. so. So uh, they're being very cautious in terms of how they actually present information, and they're really not claiming fraud in court. They're nope. claiming election irregularity, but not even the kinds of things that would necessarily lead to even a reballot, much less right. uh, a ballot that swings in favor of the president. So right. I guess my question here, uh, gentlemen, is, is this just Donald Trump in the throes of denial? Um, he's in the grieving process of, uh, of losing the presidency and he's lashing out. Or is there some kind of grander strategy by claiming fraud so vociferously when even your own campaign really can't make the case that it's occurred. I would go with the former. Both. Okay. <laughs> I don't see why it can't be both. Um, okay. I mean, yeah. So there's Donald Trump's uh, personality. Um, you know, he is in denial. I mean, he, he, he's a textbook, almost a textbook, a case of egomania, right? I mean, this yeah. is what they do. Right. Right. Um, but, but beyond that, it does, you know, potentially serve broader purposes because it continues to set up loyalty tests, right? Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, which, you know, basically managed to somehow amazingly keep the Republican Party, you know, more or less with him, right? Um, and that's useful if you're planning on running again um, in right. 2024. Or right. if you're just wanting, you know, even if you don't run again, you know, you want to sort of stay on the sidelines and sort of continue to build your brand, continue to have, you know, lots of support, maybe build a media empire, uh, maybe play kingmaker, right? All of these things can help help sort of you towards that goal. So so the goal of all this isn't, isn't you know, to... I mean, at one point, I think, you know, it was like to, to try to overturn the election. At this point, it's like it's to build a certain narrative to sort yeah. of, you know, throw everything against the wall um, to basically, you know, create the impression that there's smoke. Right. Mm -hmm. And if there's smoke, there must be fire. Right. right. And if people put up enough smoke, people will believe there's a fire and that and you can capitalize on that sort of on that sort of thinking, uh, whatever your plans are in the future. Yep. I'm not saying that he's thinking through it all really well this way. I don't know. Um, right, but right. <laughs> but it, it does seem to fit kind of his overall MO. Yeah, I'll agree with that. So one more issue. And this is just uh, hopefully this is a helpful explainer. This is less about the president, although he does make an appearance in this story. Mm -hmm. Over the course of the last 24 hours, Wayne County in Michigan 
which is where Detroit is located, met to certify their election results. And this is very normal, as we've talked about in the past. What happens on election night is the AP and other news sources make decisions to call states in certain directions. But it actually takes a couple of weeks for canvassers to actually work through the process of certifying vote counts. And then there's a partis- a process by which those 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 uh, vote counts are certified. In Wayne County, I just want to re- I'm drawing this from a NPR news story covering the events uh, last night. Um, uh, Wayne County had about uh, 800,000 votes cast, and it went overwhelmingly uh, for Joe Biden. This is an urban area. It's a predominantly African-American area. We would absolutely expect this to be the case. But the two Republican members of the Wayne County Board of Canvassers, which is a bipartisan four-person panel, um, uh, uh, initially blocked the move to certify the votes, uh, asserting and I would argue correctly that there were discrepancies in the poll books in certain Detroit precincts. According to one um, reporter that I was following on this story, 71 precincts uh, had voter discrepancies, which means that the poll books uh, basically didn't balance with the actual number of ballots that were present. Now, the numbers were off in very small numbers, these 71 precincts, one vote, maybe as many as four votes. So we're only talking about at most here, maybe a couple hundred vote discrepancy, certainly not enough to swing Michigan or even Wayne County (laughs) for uh, um, for the president um, uh, in, in any meaningful kind of way. But there were discrepancies nonetheless, and the two Republican members of the canvassing board used these discrepancies as their justification for refusing to certify the vote. And this meant a two two tie. And if that happens and the uh, Wayne County with 800,000 votes can't certify its votes, it would also mean that Michigan as a state couldn't certify its votes, which means that if Michigan as a state couldn't certify its vote tallies, the Michigan legislature would have to make a determination about what kind of uh, um, slate of electors to send to the electoral college. It's worth noting the Michigan uh, legislature is controlled by Republicans. So this literally could have flipped Michigan from a Joe Biden win to a Donald Trump win. John, Donald Trump knew that. And so he tweeted after this vote by the can, Republican canvassers, <laughs> way, to stand, way to stand up for America. Um, Amer- uh, something, I can't remember the tweet. Something like America proud. It was very celebratory until <clears throat> three hours later when under enormous public pressure, there's a public comment period for this canvassing vote. Uh, the two Republican uh uh, canvassers changed their votes, and the and the board unanimously voted to certify the the uh, the, the the count. Now they did get one concession, which is the the four canvassers instructed the Michigan Secretary of State to conduct a thorough audit of Wayne County um, yeah. balloting processes. Which is right. Which it is say. right. Absolutely. Now here's my question, guys, and maybe and if you don't know the answer to this, that's fine. We can move on. But do you have a sense that? what happened in this entire process was unusual. And if it is, where's the unusual part? Is it unusual that the polling books don't line up with the ballots? Is it unusual that canvassers would vote not to certify under these circumstances? Was this pro- just simply a propitious event? How do we, you know, I'm, I, I understand it was opportunistic for the president, but yeah, well, how do, we, how do we read this otherwise? And for what I know, the answer to your three questions are no, yes, yes. Um, so <laughs> basically, um, it is fairly normal for there to be minor, and this isn't just a Michigan thing, like for there to be minor discrepancies in yeah. the count of the number of people who entered the polling place and the number of ballots that are counted in the end of the process, right? And that's why you have a normal canvassing procedure. Every state does this, every county does this to to look into those things to see if it really mattered, right? So um, it is unusual for a, you know, for a state sort of canvas board, right? And every state has a different system for this. Every county in the states have different systems. It is unusual for a bipartisan board to basically come out and basically be in a deadlock, especially when there's no real like evidence that would fly in a court right Mm -hmm. um that there was any sort of true problematic discrepancies that would call into question the validity of the actual um of the actual election results right because there were there was you know a judge who basically you know tossed the case um you know surrounding you know wayne county in michigan said no there's actually no evidence in here like you can't submit a whole bunch of affidavits you know of sort of like 
you know, vague, you know, allegations that, you know, mm -hmm. I, I, I wasn't able to observe or I, I saw someone tampering with ballots. You can't submit super vague evidence because that's just it's it's not admissible in court. The court can't do anything with it. Right. Um, right. And so, right. you know, so the judges are tossing these cases. Um, so, yeah. you know, if the judge hadn't tossed the case and there was some sort of, you know, investigation that needed to be conducted, then sure, a deadlocked, a deadlock, you know, panel would make some sense. But that's not what was going on. So. Right. Right. And I mean, just to add to that, like, I think, you know, the point about the numbers matters a lot here. Right. Because, I mean, like, if you think about where Michigan ended up. I mean, I just looked this up, right? It's, I mean, 146,000 votes, right? Between Donald Trump and Joe Biden, right? So it's not close in Michigan. I mean, it's not a blowout by any means, right? But it's not close where, you know, a few votes here and there are going to swing it, right? I mean, so, you know, we're talking about, I mean, you know, maybe 200 votes, Chris said, right? Maybe even if we round it up, 500, whatever, right? Like, it's not significant enough, right? It's not going to matter. Um, and that right there suggests like, I mean, yeah, by all means, like audit your procedures. Yep. Um, let's make sure that we can try to do a better job in the future. I'm sure, you know, Wayne County has often been criticized for many bad jobs. Um, there's a reason like Detroit's lost a lot of population, right? But, um, you know, that, that's, Although I don't think doing. the board of elections can be blamed for that. I don't think it can be blamed for all of Detroit's problems, but they're probably, you know, not unaffected by the, the problems within Detroit. Right. So, and by all means, like do, you know, do an audit, check and try to do a better job next time. At the same time, like also acknowledge like a few hundred votes isn't making a difference. If this is Florida 2000, then maybe this is a bigger deal, right? But it's not. I mean, it's just, and it's not close to being that. Um, even if this was in Wisconsin, it wouldn't be enough, right? Uh, and Wisconsin's way closer than Michigan. So I think that's, you know, it would be, it's really abnormal to hold it up for that, um, to get that kind of concession of, hey, we should check our systems. That seems fair. Um, the rest of it, not so much. All right, guys. Hope you're ready for this. Oh, so... Do you have your pocket protectors? Do you have your slide rules? It's time to talk about polling and modeling. <laughs> <laughs> now, we've talked about polling. You still use slide rules? Come on, Chris. No, of course I don't. But <laughs> it's like you can't, it's, it's, it's like one of those um, mimetic kinds of images. Like you can't think about the pocket protector without thinking about the slide rule. They go together. No one actually uses these things anymore, but, wow. you know. <laughs> um, we have, we've mentioned polling plenty of times in this podcast, but polling, like usual, um, has both a, um, a pre and post mortem. And we, uh, we had a bunch of our listeners and a bunch of, of America paying religious attention to polling and also people who, who pay attention to polling. So people are not only just paying attention to what poll pollsters are putting out, but what people like Nate Silver and Nate Cohn were doing with, with those polls. Yep. But now that the election is over, there's been a fair amount of grief and derision directed at both the Nates, but also at pollsters more generally for the appearance of getting things wrong. We want to try and offer just a brief uh, one unit of polling 101, and I'm going to to open up this lecture. I'm going to turn it over to Dr. Kukum. <laughs> uh, Dr. Kukum, what should we keep in mind when we approach modeling uh, voter behavior and modeling it through something like public opinion polling. Okay. Yeah. So some of this will be a little bit of a repeat of what I said in our special library episode, but I'll say a few extra things as well. So again, we're still waiting final results, especially in Pennsylvania, Ohio, even states like California, right, which take weeks to, to count and finalize their vote, which you can affect the popular vote, you know, U.S. popular vote total. So we're still waiting final results. Um, there's a lot of just crummy polling analysis out there, including um, by some pollsters and political types who should know better. So, so let's kind of walk through this. So, so I pointed out that polling errors of three to four points are fairly normal in elections. So keep that in mind. So that's sort of, so if you have a polling error in a state or the national level, that's three to four points, that's actually not bad. You shouldn't freak right. out. Um, 2018, interesting. Well, so our previous midterm was actually quite a good year for polling, right? Mm -hmm. um, also, polling errors can shift from cycle to cycle. Um, so it's not that, oh, the polls, you know, are consistently favoring Democrats now. So so it's just rigged for Democrats. Like, well, it turns out in 2012, the polls underestimated support for Obama and the Democrats by four points, right? Mm -hmm. um, and that's probably what we're going to end up with in reverse in this cycle, four points underestimating for Republicans, sort of all the way down, right? So polling errors happen, polling errors shift from cycle to cycle. So when we look at polls, again, we need to look at aggregations of polls, averages of polling results, as opposed to particular polls, when we're trying to think about the big picture. Now, polling, 
I think people misunderstand what polls tell us and this precise sort of information that polls tell us is polling is not a precise instrument. It is probabilistic, right? It's giving you a range of possibilities and it's telling you about the certainty of these various possibilities, right? Um, because whenever you, you know, have a sample of, excuse me, a population of millions of people or hundreds of millions in a whole country, and you are taking an extremely small sample of that overpopulation, statistically, there's going to be uncertainty of how accurate re your results are. And that's what creates what we call a polling error, right? And there is usually a range of outcomes that are, you know, within, let's say, an 80% probability, right? And that's what we have to think about. So whenever you look at a poll, you shouldn't look at just, oh, Biden's up five points. He could be up, he could be up 10 points or he could be tied right with Trump. That's how you should think about it. So, so we have false expectations about what polls are actually telling us. And thus we also have false expectations about what models might be telling us. And I think right. people like Nate Silver did in his team tried really, really hard to tell us to help us think through probabilities, right? And think about what precisely the information is, but we don't like uncertainties, right? We like certainty. We won't be told like, this is exactly what's going to happen. But you know what? Polls don't give us that kind of information, right? Also, we tend to overemphasize the margin in polls, right? Like, well, Biden, you know, you know, Trump, you know, Trump won by, you know, plus five. But but, you know, the polls only had him as plus one. Right. And we get so worked up. of like, well, dang it, there's a four point margin. Like, that's horrific. Like, well, no, not really. It turns out that the polling almost always gets the direction right right? Mm -hmm. The polling usually does a pretty good job of picking the winner. Right. And that's what's important, right? So getting yeah. freaking yeah. out about margins is just statistically dumb, right? We need yeah. to think about directions. That's the most yeah. important. If we get the direction wrong a lot, then we need to start worrying seriously. But I don't think we're probably at that stage. I mean, so in the statewide elections, polls generally predicted the winner correctly. There's only a few yeah. exceptions. The only exceptions on this are Florida and North Carolina, um, which Biden was very slightly ahead in in polling aggregates, but they ended up going for Trump. Right. Um, and in right. Senate races, um, the only exceptions in which you have Democrats having a polling lead, but Republicans won are North Carolina and Maine. And they're exceptional for reasons that we already discussed. So so yep. polls did a pretty good job getting the direction right, especially at statewide level. And then once you go down to like smaller sort of district level races, those are much harder to poll. So you have to yep. be, so yep. there's a higher polling error there. You can't sort of, you definitely can't get worked up about margins at that. So um, anyway, I, I could I could ramble on and I have more to say, but I'll, I'll let you guys jump well, in. At this yeah, point. I'll just jump in a little bit. I mean, like, I think just building on what you're saying about like 538s, which I think 538 has kind of, you know, if you're going to do the stats and the polling, right, they, they do it as well as anyone better than pretty much anybody else. And they, they do try to like bring in all the polls, assess quality, and then be, you know, be careful about sort of saying like, here's what this says, here's what it doesn't say, right? And so like one thing that I think is useful to look at with 538 is their range of possible outcomes, right? So, yeah. so like they did miss a couple of Senate races for reasons, as you said, Matt, that we've talked about before on here. But, but like when you look at their range, right, their range was, we think there's an 80% chance, right, um, that it's going to end up somewhere between um, you know, 55 Democrats on the high end for the Democrats, 52 Republicans on the high end for the Republicans. Where are we at? 50 Republicans, 48 Democrats, and two that are still to be decided, right? It's going to be in that range, right? Whichever way the two Georgia seats go, it's going to be in that 80% range, right? And so, you know, the polling's not wrong there. It's just saying, like, there's some uncertainty. We don't know, like, which one is it going to be, right? Um, and it turned out that things went a little bit more in Republican favor, right? Same with the presidential outcomes, right? I mean, again, they missed two states out of 48. Um, that's pretty pretty good. And those were two that they said, those are gonna be close. There's a pretty decent chance Trump wins them. And in fact, he did, right? Um, the House was a little bit more of a miss, but as you just said, Matt, th there's so little polling on individual House races. Um, that's a lot harder to assess. And even there, they didn't miss by much. Right? They said the Democrats would hold a majority and they will. Um, the, their, you know, the, the number of seats might be just slightly out of their range. Um, but even that is not, not far off. So again, I mean, I think the polling misses have been pretty overstated and they have more to do with our, our, um, assuming polls are super accurate when in fact, they're more a range of possible outcomes. Exactly. Yeah. For the most part, 
almost all the results were within sort of the thick part of the distribution curve. That yeah. is to say, right. nearly all of the results were within the range of very normal outcomes. Yeah. So I want to just footstomp something that uh, Matt said just a moment ago, which is where we see the most polling occurring and the most uh, well high quality polling occurring. Well, it's in national public opinion polls, and that's where the mm -hmm. polls were the most accurate. Uh, we, we're going to get the popular vote distribution between Biden and Trump very, very close to what pollsters expected. Yeah. So it might, get, be about, it might be about three or four points, but yeah, it's, it's, it's within the margin yeah. of error probably uh, for those po expected polls. And yeah. it gets harder when you say, okay, I actually want to figure out the electoral college because now you're relying on not just national polls. You're relying on a set of 50 different state polls and not every state's polled equally well or equally often. It gets right. even harder when you get down to the level of representatives. And so what we're often doing to model things like what we think the House is going to look like is looking at national polls, enthusiasm for the Democratic Party, enthusiasm for yeah. the Republican Party. Yeah. But those things are highly um, obscured by enthusiasm for presidential candidates, not necessarily your local member of Congress. And the other thing I would just add here is that we can have some effects from the very systematically different way these two parties went about their ground games. Yeah. Um, start with, with Biden at the lead, but basically down the entire ticket, Democratic uh, candidates for Congress didn't do door knocking. They didn't do person to person get out the vote efforts because of the coronavirus. In contrast, Republicans really did. And yep. Republicans were going door to door and knocking. And I'm not sure that that has a big enough effect to swing presidential races because I think people were highly yeah. mobilized and highly polarized when it comes to the president. I'm not sure that's the case for their local member of Congress. Most people have to be reminded who their local member of Congress even is. So <laughs> having someone come to their door and remind them to go vote for Dean Phillips, that's my member of Congress, um, right. might make them more likely to go out and vote for, for that person. Yeah. And so I think that can explain some of this what appears to be this undercounting of republican voters now there might be some other things happening here there might be some other kinds of of shifts but as we've already said matt right there is no such thing as a shy vote or, or there's no shy trump voter theory right there might be something yeah. else going on here but it's not that they're shy yeah and we should maybe spend a little bit of time talking about what the polls did get wrong and possibly why right so so we spent all this time defending the polls, um, but of course it's complex. You know, we shouldn't give the, the polls a free pass, right? right? And the pollsters at the end of every election generally are doing a postmortem and figuring out, okay, what do we do wrong? What sort of you know assumptions you know turn out to be not quite right, and how are we going to change it for the next time? And of course, it's difficult because every election is a kind of a different beast, right? Um, and and missing assumption even slightly can have an effect on the margins. So so there were some big you know relatively big polling misses, especially in Wisconsin, Iowa, Florida, and Michigan. I mean, overall, the average polling error in the top 18 swing states was 3.7 points. Ain't that at all, right? Mm -hmm. But there were some big polling misses in some states, especially Wisconsin, Iowa, Florida, and Michigan. And some of these polling misses in 2020 were bigger than some of the 2016 polling misses um, yep. at both the national level and in some states, especially in Florida and some of these Midwestern states. So the question is, why? So a few things here. Um, and again, there's a lot of bad analysis floating around about why the polls missed as well. Um, so first of all, high turnout, guys. I mean, so we had a record-setting turnout across the country, and it's hard to predict how these new voters are going to vote, right? Yeah. So when you have high turnout, there's a lot of people that are coming out to vote for the first time, maybe ever, right? Mm -hmm. And it's especially hard to figure out how these people are going to vote, right? Especially if they don't register mm -hmm. with, a, with a political party and they register as independents, right? It's difficult to get sort of the sampling and the weighting right on these people. Um, of course, there's, you know, the popular theory that's making its rounds again, uh, the shy Trump voters. But again, we've said there's almost no evidence for shy Trump voters. I mean, there's probably a few, right? Um, there's, you know, maybe some social desirability by bias sort of playing in, but it really doesn't make a lot of sense because the polling misses were greater for Republican senators and representatives than Trump. So mm -hmm. Republican senators... And representatives, everyone down the ballot did better than Trump. And so so Susan Collins and John Cornyn, sort of very standard sort of Republican or very moderate Republicans, right? Does this mean that there are more shy Collins voters in Maine than there are shy Trump voters in Maine? Well, no, that's right. just absurd, right? right. Um, it's, it's, it's silly to think that there is more shyness for expressing support for all of the other candidates except Trump, right? More than right. Trump, it's just nuts, right? So so right. really the problem is is not so much with 
of social desirability bias and misleading responses by people who are being polled, it has to do with, with the methods, right? The weighting, the sampling, and the response rates. Um, the response rates are probably, you know, some funky things going on there is probably why we had some polling misses, right? So, um, so a few things to keep in mind here. So one possibility is that there are certain people, especially Republicans, that were maybe a little bit less likely to answer pollsters this time around. They weren't necessarily misleading, but they're slightly less likely to answer um, in proportion to the number of Republicans who actually did come out and vote, right? So Republicans have lower social trust. So they're less likely to trust institutions. They don't trust the media and they don't trust, um, you know, um, the academy and it's the media and the academy that are running these polls, right? And Trump is out there trashing the polls as well. And there's a lot of ongoing myths and polling errors about, you know, about what happened in 2016. Um, and so hey, this, yeah. Quick, quick question about that. In terms of, I've heard this also said other elsewhere that uh, Republicans have lower social trust. Is that a relatively recent phenomenon? And is that exacerbated by Trump? Or is this a more enduring effect? I mean, this, I mean, this has predated Trump, but Trump has accelerated. Um, okay. And you might be able to provide some some more concrete statistics on that. But, but there is some evidence that now, you know, and it, it's not necessarily, you know, a huge gap, but there is less social trust. Right. And this might make them less likely to respond to pollsters, right? So you just make them harder to reach, right? Yep. Another thing, which I, some people have been floating, and it, it actually makes some sense to me, is that COVID actually has been screwing up our response rates. So yeah. people who are able to work more from home tend to have more information-based jobs, higher incomes, and higher education levels. Right. It turns out that all these people tend to be more Democratic than Republican, right? And so there's just been more Democrats at home. This makes them more reachable by pollsters. And we do know uh, there's lots of concrete yeah. evidence that um, whenever we've seen a spike of cases in states, COVID cases in states, and more people stay home, pollsters are actually getting higher responses when that's occurring, right? And then, you know, these people are going to be a little bit more disproportionately democratic, right? Um, and so this is going to sort of skew sort of the, the you know, the sampling and the weighting that pollsters are doing, right? Yep. And, and that makes it difficult. So when you couple that with the low social tr trust for Republicans, you know, you get sort of a recipe for maybe, you know, a three or four point, you know, or more point polling this. Right. Right. And then finally, just groups that are hard to reach. Um, you know, hard to reach groups means that we have less data on these groups. And you can't, when you have less data, that means your predictions have more uncertainty, right? Yeah. When there's more uncertainty, you can get more outcomes that seem to be sort of, um, seem to be bigger misses than you would expect, right? Yeah. So. Yeah. Right. And, and I think it's just one other thing I would add to all this is like, I mean, this was a lot higher turnout election, right, than, yeah. than yeah. Um, we've had typically. Um, we're not sure in the final numbers. We're still working all that yet, yet but um, it was really high turnout. And that gets hard to model. I mean, because we're, we're talking about something that is a, a bit unprecedented, right, in terms of just how good this was. Um, and that's there's a lot of good things about that. But in terms of like actually pulling that well, right, that does create an additional challenge. So I think what, what you're saying, Matt, is I mean, there's different layers of challenge here for pollsters that they're trying to cope with and mostly successfully, but not wholly. Right. I mean, like, how do you cope with getting a really high turnout? How do you cope with the problems of covid? Right. And the, the very different work patterns and then therefore reachability patterns. How do you cope with the fact that there's these mail in ballots and, you know, like there's just all there's all these different levels. Um, that made this challenging. And what's impressive is that for the most part, they're still pretty, pretty much within the range. Although uh, maybe this caused them some places where they, you know, that didn't happen. Yeah. There's another kind of polling guys that we need to uh, begin to unpack. And it's harder this year than most years, but that is what uh, exit polling. And that is what we see in the results after the election. So we have all of this polling leading up to the elections, but then we get another set of data that comes from the elections themselves. Now, in a normal year, we'd all be voting on uh, uh, the third, and we'd all be uh, exiting, and then there would be pollsters set up at different polling locations around the country asking people how they voted. And we would develop some pretty robust exit polling from that. And we'd get some... some um, demographic data from people we'd get some uh, ideological data from people but it was made much harder this year because yep. a lot of the voting took place early and even yep. worse the who voted early versus who voted in person seems to be systematically skewed 
So yeah. we knew we know a lot of Republicans voted on the day of the election. A lot more Democrats voted early, and those mail-in ballots resulted in that blue shift that we talked about, or red mirage, whichever term you prefer, and sure. causing uh, uh, votes to stay to move one direction and to swing back the other direction as all the votes were counted. With all that in mind, guys, do we have any good data about? Um, what various groups voted for in or who various groups voted for in our electorate? Andy, do you want to <laughs> take a stab? Um, no, go for it. <laughs> okay. Okay. So there's, there's a lot. Yeah. Again, you know, all of this is provisional, so we're not even going to talk about hard numbers here. So, so it turned out the Democrats held urban areas um, mm -hmm. and they really made the biggest gains in the inner suburbs, not the outer suburbs, but the inner suburbs, right? This is where the biggest gains were for Democrats. Um, so they continued to um, you know, do well um, amongst minorities, but Republicans um, gained a, a little bit um, amongst the black population and gained considerably amongst the Hispanic population. We'll come back to that in a minute. Um, perhaps another thing that we should point out is that there's this deepening sort of diploma divide, right? College educated um, folks um, are increasingly voting more with the Democratic Party, and people without a college education are increasingly voting with Republicans. That's a trend that has already sort of existed, but it has accelerated um, in this election. So it's 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 more of what we've seen in the past, but it's accelerated. Um, so so yeah, that's kind of the in a broad sweep where we're at. Um, you know, Republicans, if they're going to you know make gains, they really need to try to pull in some of these educated folks. Um, they need to do better with women. Um, women voted. Uh, we see the gender gap, um, especially in this election, was very strong, especially at the very top um, for the for the president. Um, so. So Republicans need to make gains there as well. And the Democrats are going to have to do some some um, some serious thinking about how they're reaching out to Hispanics, to the Latino community or communities, I should say. We should definitely talk about that, I think. Yeah, I agree. I um, I'd love to know a little bit more about how some of these groups um, sort of micro level groups uh, shifted. Uh, as we know, um, it, we can't treat all um, Hispanics as a, as a voting block very easily, or we, we do so at our peril, right? Uh, Florida Cubans seem to support Trump in much greater numbers right. than um, uh, Mexican and Guatemalan voters in Arizona did. So there's some variance here, and I'd love to unpack that. There's some very there's some variances inside of the African American community that seem to be driven by not only level of education, but also um, uh, um, level of religiosity. Um, with yeah. more religious African-Americans actually voting more for the Democratic Party, uh, which seems to be at odds with our interpretation of how evangelicals vote, or at least white evangelicals vote, which is our baseline assumption should be that uh, about eight out of 10 evangelicals should vote for Donald Trump. That's what happened in 2016. I'm anxious to see if that shifts. And hopefully by the next time we talk about this next time, we'll have better numbers on that. Yeah. Um, yeah. And the preliminary numbers we have don't indicate a big shift in that. I mean, but but again, we'll see. You know, once the numbers get a little more solid. Um, yeah. So we're we're nearing the end of our time here, but let's let's end with this, gentlemen. Given what we know now about the election and and the way that things have played out here, do you, what paths forward do you see for for both parties? Um, does this harbinger any kind of uh, future strategies? Well, I think that's, and that's the debate we're starting to see yeah. unfold, certainly on the Democratic side, right? Um, the Republicans right now are still fighting about whether Trump won the election or not. Sure. And that, I think that's, that's you know, as Trump is, often does, right, it's sort of sucking all the oxygen out of the room. Um, so they haven't really started their internal debate. Um, I think within the Democratic Party, what we're seeing is a debate over, do we go too far left? Um, do we get captured by... Um, you know, like slogans that ended up being really problematic for us in key places like defund the police, right? Um, and, you know, whether that was unwise, right? Um, and and so it didn't buy you any voters, but lost you some, right? And so um, I think there's that concern that we kind of have become captive to the progressive left, right? And we need to uh, maybe move a little bit more toward being a big center, you know, the center or big tent party 
Um, still, still liberal, right? Certainly, no one's, I think, debating that. But, but, like, you know, how liberal, right? Do how far left do we want to go? So, I think, you know, you're yep. seeing, you're seeing that, and there's, and there's these different interpretations. I mean, what does, you know, what do these vote totals mean? I think eventually we're going to see that in the Republican Party too, right? And it probably centers around, you know, do we keep, you know, is it Trumpism with Trump? Is it Trumpism without Trump? Uh, I think less likely is the narrative that we need to move away from Trumpism. It doesn't seem like this was enough of a repudiation that that's likely to happen. But, mm -hmm. uh, but I think you're um, you're going to get some kind of you know debates within the Republican Party along you know like sort of what does the future look like? Um, yeah. yeah, on the Democratic side, yeah, I think you're absolutely right, Andy. It's interesting to read um, some of these Democrats, you know, especially like in. Um, you know, in these house districts that right. were just defeated, who were favored, yeah. right? And they're basically giving interviews now saying like, I couldn't escape sort of the democratic brand, um, which has been pushing to the left and I couldn't escape it. And I wasn't getting support from my party leadership on this. And I wasn't getting support from the media on this um, because the media was on board with sort of the, the move towards the hard left. And, and that's why I lost, right? Um, mm -hmm. And there's some indication that this is why um, a lot of Hispanics jumped ship right? Not just the Cubans, right? Mm -hmm. um, but but a lot of Hispanics in other areas as well, including sort of the southern border of Texas. Um, you know, they don't, you know, necessarily subscribe to um, sort of the the characterization that progressive Democrats have of them, right? Um, they actually care. If you look at that polling of them, what, what they care about is they care about the economy. They care about good jobs. Um, they actually, interestingly, um, they actually think that there might be too much immigration in the United States or that we have the appropriate amount. They care about border security. They care about, mm -hmm. in Texas at least, they care about uh, the oil and natural gas industry. They don't mm -hmm. experience racism or racial tension because they all live in 100% Hispanic communities, right? Um, so mm -hmm. th that are homogenous, right? Um, they don't like being labeled Latinx, right? Um, mm -hmm you can't even translate that into Spanish. <laughs> so <laughs> right, um, right. you literally can't. So, and they're yeah. also very yeah. socially conservative. They have the highest rate of a religious affiliation yeah. in any ethnic or racial group in the United States, right? Mm -hmm. and, and, the, and the Democratic Party is increasingly becoming anti-religious in some of its rhetoric. So, so, um, so there's a lot of reasons why, you know, that why Hispanics in droves sort of, you know, jumped um, and I think Democrats are going to have to do some really serious soul searching about, okay, what is, what is the democratic party about? Um, are we, are we going to try to be inclusive or are we going to sort of push so far left that we're going to leave a lot of people just feeling really uncomfortable, um, with a party that they had, you know, for generations felt at home in. Yeah. yeah. Right. And I think that, you know, the point you made is about just even what you call them, right? Latin, is it Latinx or how do you, how did you say that? Latinx. Latinx, right? Yeah. Um, right. I mean, this is a move that came from kind of the, like, let's be honest, white liberals, right? Who are like, yep. we need to be, oh, we have to be inclusive. We have to be, you know, like we have to sort of, you know, come up with a term that doesn't label by gender. And it's like, it doesn't, it's not from that community, right? So you're, you're, you're imposing this term on them and saying like, this is what you're gonna call yourselves. It doesn't even translate to Spanish, right? I mean, like, that's a problem, right? That's, that's kind of crazy. Um, they don't call themselves this, right? And yet you say like, no, we know better. This is what we're going to call you, right? Um, well, to, be, to be fair, guys, there are plenty of Latin um, uh, or plenty of Hispanic activists who do use that term. Oh, sure. Right. But they're, yeah. but it's not, it's not something that is like, again, kind of going to be working with the rank and file um, right. Hispanic voters, right? Sure. This is, this is not a term they would use within their community. It's used by kind of elite liberal activists, right? And so, you know, it gets in a mindset, right? Like we know what's best for you. We're going to impose this, right? And I think that's problematic. So I think they need to soul search and say like, you know, are we going to be those people or are we, and, and then for leave an opening for the Republicans to say, hey, we'll let you come in on your own terms or are we going to actually listen, right? And I think that's a, a real concern in the Hispanic community as we've noted on here before, right? I mean, this is a growing portion of the U.S. population. They are growing in relation to African-Americans and to white Americans, right? Um, their importance is only going to grow, right? And especially as they become more active as voters, which right now they vote at lower rates than African-Americans and white Americans. But as they grow as the voting proportion, I mean, that, that import, importance is only going to skyrocket as well. Right. And, and interestingly, I mean, this presents a, an opportunity for Republicans 
um, you know, especially, you know, now that Trump's out of office and some of the this, you know, super racially charged rhetoric, you know, will hopefully leave as well. Perhaps Republicans can now, you know, find a way to reach out more effectively to these groups, which they've not been great at in the past. Right. Right. Um, and, you know, there's there's an opportunity here. I mean, it, it was right. interesting. And this has been recognized by, by some Republicans for a long time. I mean, Ronald Reagan sort of quipped at one point. He said, you know, Hispanics are already Republican. They just don't know it. Right. Which is, you know, right, probably right. not completely fair. <laughs> right. Or true. Right, right, um, right. But he, he was right to point out that there is, you know, a potentially natural alliance if Republicans present themselves the correct way. Right. Um, and and Republicans would be smart to to capitalize on that. And if they don't, um, you know, they're going to be locked out, um, so to speak, of, of a of a demographic that is growing very quickly and becoming an increasingly um, sort of vital part of of U.S. you know society and <laughs> electoral politics, right, right, and I mean, there's and there's plenty of precedent for that kind of outreach. I mean, like again, you just have to go back to the the previous Republican president, George W. Bush, yeah, who was exactly. much more aware of. Um, you know, the Hispanic community and trying to reach out to them and trying to cultivate votes there. He did very well in his elections in Texas, even as a, if, if memory serves me correctly, in 2004, in his reelection, he won like 44% of the Hispanic vote. Um, yeah. So again, I mean, like, it's not like this is a community that's hostile to the Republican Party. Um, and so I think there's opportunities there, but you have to think about how do we do that well? Um, and obviously the way Trump has been doing it, it seems like probably not the optimal strategy, right? I think that's actually a really good place to wrap this up, Andy, is I am struck by the fact that we have these two parties who are in this zero-sum game contest yep. for the votes of American voters, and yet they operate so suboptimally, frequently, in their yeah. strategies to capture what would otherwise be reasonably uh, uh, reasonably gettable voters. And I that, that to me, is a real puzzle. Uh, I'm not an Americanist. Mm -hmm. But it seems to me like you would you would practice all kinds of rationalist strategies of emulation of 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 of, of, of you know sort of mo median voter theory kinds of approaches to try to capture as many of these voters as you can. And both parties are failing in certain kinds of ways uh, yeah. to get some of these populations. And I'm I'm struck by that. Mm -hmm. so. And yeah. that's what we'll be talking about in the next couple of podcasts when we talk right. about, you know, <laughs> the Democrats and Republicans and and kind of where they're going from here. So that's right. We'll so uh, join us next time as we polish off our or dust off our crystal balls and look at what uh, future strategies <laughs> of the GOP wow. and the, uh, uh, the DNC might adopt in future elections and what the template might look like uh, for both parties. Thanks for joining us, guys. Thank you. This is fun. Yeah. Um, you can always get a hold of us at electionshocktherapy at gmail.com. We'd love to hear your comments and questions, and we'll try to get to them on the podcast uh, if you have good questions. So thanks for that. Um, and uh, don't forget to subscribe to the channel. It's channel 3900. You can uh, check out the channel at channel 3900 at gmail.com. You can also um, subscribe. Please do so. Uh, there'll be lots of great things in your feed, not only our podcast, but uh, Bookish at Bethel, Video Store, Tweet Victory, lots of other great things. Thanks for listening. And on behalf of my colleagues here at Bethel University and to our back in your podcast feed, go Royals. Go Royals.